0: When you want to think about geopolitically the most complex stories from around the world, you often point to places like the Balkans and the Middle East. In fact, you would point to the Balkans and the Middle East. But are these problems, how old are they? Are they that old? Are these problems so old that they cannot be solved? Or are they actually kind of new? Well, let's take a look. First of all, where in the world is the Middle East? If you're in India, you refer to the place as West Asia. Some European countries call it the Near East. It's basically, in my view, Egypt, Israel, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Iran, and the entire Arabian Peninsula, including its biggest player, Saudi Arabia. It does not include, in my view, any of the Arabic-speaking North African countries outside of Egypt. It may include some of Anatolia, but from my definition, I exclude Turkey completely. The entire region has seen empires come and go. Most recently, the American one has come and go. But the French, British, Persian, Arab, Roman, Egyptian, Sumerian, Babylonian, Judean, Akkadian, Assyrian, and any countless others over the millennia have come and gone. And we do need to talk in the thousands of years of human history for this region. It is believed that this region was the origin of advanced human settlements. The Middle East is, after all, the region that would then become the modus operandi for the next 5,000 plus 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 years of human civilization. It all started in the Levant, on the Nile, in Anatolia, and the banks of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. It is believed by many that even agriculture started there. So, that region, the Middle East region, is the cradle of civilization. Just to jog your memory, in case you were not around all those years ago, the Romans were in the Middle East region before Christ. Christ was technically a rebel in the Roman Empire, and by many accounts the Romans did not really like him. Once the Western Roman Empire fell in 476 AD, the Eastern Empire continued until 1453 AD when the Ottoman Turks invaded and annexed Constantinople. Once the Ottomans picked up probably the greatest city in Europe at the time, they were also able to advance their empire a little bit up into Latin Christendom. Then they took southeastern Europe and a bit of the Balkans in particular. They also took on much of the Middle Eastern region. That empire, the Ottomans, and the occupation continued from then all the way up to World War I, that's 1914. To sum up, Romans and Persians and then Arabs and then Roman Be- Byzantines, and then the Ottoman Turks, in short, ultimately controlled much of this part of the world. If the natives had disagreements with one another, the empires kept a lid on it. What was the Cyprus Convention of 1878, you might ask? Well, I'm glad you asked, because the Cyprus Convention of the 4th of June, 1878, was a secret, top-secret-ish agreement, reached between Great Britain and the Ottoman Empire that granted administrative control of Cyprus to Britain in exchange for its support for the Ottomans during the Congress of Berlin. That said, Congress of Berlin, 13th June to 13th July 1878, was a diplomatic conference to reorganize the states in the Balkan Peninsula after the russo turkish War of 1877-78, which had been won by Russia against the Ottomans. Represented at the meeting were Europe's then six great powers, Russia, Great Britain, France, Austria-Hungary, Italy, and Germany. The Ottomans and four Balkan states, Greece, Serbia, Romania, and Montenegro, the Congress concluded with the signing of that Treaty of Berlin, replacing the preliminary Treaty of San Stefano that had been signed three months earlier. The leader of the Congress, German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck, sought to stabilize the Balkans, reduce the role of the defeated Ottoman Empire in the region, and balance the distinct interests of Britain, Russia, and Austria-Hungary. He also wanted to avoid domination of the Balkans by Russia or the formation of a greater Bulgaria and to keep Constantinople firmly in Ottoman hands. Under under Bismarck's influence, the Congress stripped the Ottomans of many of the European possessions, but refused to grant them to Russia and massively reduced the gains for Bulgaria. And you might be wondering why the Germans would want to do that. If so, think of it logically. It is all about balance of power geopolitics in Europe. You don't want somebody to become too powerful In the event that they could dominate you, everyone should be somewhat balanced and aligned in different ways. So it made complete sense to Bismarck and it made complete sense to the decision-making of geopolitics and treaty-making at the time. Those impacted territories of the Ottoman Empire were granted varying degrees of independence. Romania, for example, became fully independent of the Ottoman Turks, though was forced to give part of Barbarissa to Russia and gained northern Dobuja. Serbia and Montenegro were also granted full independence but lost territory, with Austria-Hungary occupying the Sandak region along with Bosnia and Herzegovina. Britain took possession of Cyprus, as I mentioned, Of the territory that remained within the Ottoman Empire, Bulgaria was made a semi-independent principality. Eastern Rumelia became a special administration and the region of Macedonia was returned to the Ottomans on condition of reforms to its governance. In the long term, the settlement led to rising tensions between Russia and Austria-Hungary and various disputes over nationalism in the Balkans. grievances with the results of the Congress festered until they exploded in the First and Second Balkan Wars, 1912 and 1913 respectively. Continuing nationalism in the Balkans was one of the causes of the First World War outbreak in 1914. One incredibly famous saying attributed to Bismarck is, and I'm quoting him, one day the Great European War will come out of some damned foolish thing in the Balkans, end quote. And Bismarck said that in 1888, 26 years before the onset of the Great War, and you should know, hopefully, that the Great War was a result of an assassination attempt and actual assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand in the Balkans. So where are the Balkans? It's in southeastern Europe, and it includes much of Greece and Serbia, some of Croatia, Slovenia, Romania, Turkey, and even bits of Italy. Also includes all of Kosovo, Bulgaria, Montenegro, North Macedonia, Bosnia, and Albania. So there's a bunch of countries. The Balkans, like the Middle East, was in the Ottoman Empire. Like the Middle East, the year 1922 was a big deal for this region. In 1922, the Ottoman Empire an empire that started hundreds of years prior, the one that finally took the city of Constantinople. Yes, that Ottoman Empire, that one, it collapsed and fell. The fall of the Ottoman Empire began as early as the mid to late 1800s, confirming the Ottoman Empire at the turn of the century was known as the Sick Man of Europe. So what was going on and what prompted this sudden sort of decline in the Ottoman Empire? Well, one of the things was the Christian population of the empire, owing to their higher levels of education, started to pull ahead of the Muslim majority, leading to much resentment of the part of the latter. In 1861, there were 571 primary and 94 secondary schools for Ottoman Christians, with 140,000 pupils in total a figure that vastly exceeded the number of Muslim children in school at the same time, who were further hindered by the amount of time spent learning Arabic and Islamic theology versus anything else. In turn, the higher education levels of the Christians allowed them to play a larger role in the economy. In 1911, of the 654 wholesale companies in Istanbul, 528 were owned by ethnic Greeks. In many cases, Christians and also Jews were able to gain protection from European councils and citizenship, meaning they were protected from Ottoman law and not subject to the same economic regulations as their Muslim counterparts, giving them a leg up. Then there was a Crimean War. Crimean War that lasted between 1853 and 1856 was part of a long-running contest between the major European powers for influence over territories of the declining Ottoman Empire. The financial burden of the war led the Ottoman state to issue foreign loans amounting to £5 million sterling on the 4th of August, 1854. The war caused an exodus of the Crimean Tatars, about 200,000 of whom moved to the Ottoman Empire in continuing waves of emigration towards the end of the Caucasian Wars. 90% of the Caesareans were ethnically cleansed and exiled from their homelands in the Caucasus and fled to the Ottoman Empire resulting in the settlement of 500,000 to 700,000 people in Turkey. Remember what I said earlier, the Ottomans are not spending much money on education, and that's going to bite them later. In addition to that, as the Ottoman state attempted to modernize or attempted to modernize its infrastructure and army in response to these outside threats, it also ended up opening itself up to a completely different kind of threat the threat of the creditor. The Ottoman state, which had begun taking debt with the Crimean War, was forced to declare bankruptcy in 1875. By 1881, the Ottoman Empire agreed to have its debt controlled by an institution known as the Ottoman Public Debt Administration, a council of European men with presidency alternating between France and Britain. The body controlled swaths of the Ottoman economy and used its position to ensure that European capital continued to penetrate the empire, often to the to the negativity of local Ottoman interests. As I'd mentioned earlier, and it may be worth mentioning again, British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli advocated for restoring the Ottoman ten- uh, territories on the Balkan Peninsula during the Congress of Berlin. In return, yes, in return. For aforementioned Cyprus. Controversially, many Armenians suggest that from 1894 to 1896, between 100,000 and 300,000 Armenians living throughout the empire were killed in what became known as the Armenian Massacres. As the Ottoman Empire gradually shrank in size, some 79 million Muslims from its former territories in the Caucasus, Crimea, Balkans, and the Mediterranean islands migrated to Anatolia and Eastern Thrace. East Thrace, by the air is the area around Constantinople. After the empire lost the First Balkan War, 1912 to 1913, it lost all its Balkan territories except East Thrace. This resulted in around 400,000 Muslims fleeing with the retreating Ottoman armies, with many dying from cholera brought by the soldiers, and with some 400,000 non-Muslims fleeing territories still under Ottoman Empire, in other words, going the other way. This dissolution of the empire coincided with what became known as the Second Constitutional Era, a moment of hope and promise established with the Young Turk Revolution. The Young Turks were a political reform movement in the early 20th century that favoured the replacement of the Ottoman Empire's absolute monarchy with a constitutional government they led a rebellion against the absolute rule of Sultan Abdul Hamid II in the, 18, in the 1908 Young Turk Revolution. With this revolution, the Young Turks helped to establish the Second Constitutional Era in the same year, ushering in an era of multi-party democracy for the first time in the country's history. The constitution offered hope by freeing the empire's citizens to modernize the state's institutions, rejuvenate its strength and enable it to hold its own against outside powers. Its guarantee of liberties promised to dissolve intercommunal tensions and transform the empire into a more harmonious place. Instead, this period became the story ultimately of the twilight of the struggle of this empire. Foreign powers like the Austro-Hungarians used this and gained territory such as Bosnia while the Ottoman Turks were kindly losing territory to people like the Italians and it ultimately lost all of its European territories in the Balkans in the 1912-1913 to 1913 wars, the empire faced continuous unrest in the years leading up to war, including the 31st March incidents and further coup attempts in 1912-1913. and 1913. The Ottoman Empire ultimately entered World War I on the side of the Central Powers, who were ultimately defeated. In 1915, the Ottoman government and Kurdish tribes in the region started the extermination of its ethnic Armenian population, resulting in the death of up to 1.5 million Armenians in the Armenian Genocide. This is hotly debated and contested by modern Turks, but is recognized by modern Armenians and other many other independent historians. The genocide, it is suggested, was carried out during and after World War I and implemented in two bases. The wholesale killing of the able-bodied male population through massacre and subjugation of army conscripts to forced labor, followed by the deportation of women, children and the elderly and infirm on death marches leading to the Syrian desert. Driven forward by military escorts, the deportees were deprived of food and water and subjected to periodic robbery, rape, and systematic massacre. Large-scale massacres were also committed against the empire's Greek and Assyrian minorities as part of the same campaign of ethnic cleansing. Once again, this is hotly contested by modern Turks. The Arab revolt began in 1916 with British support. It turned the tide against the Ottomans on the Middle Eastern Front, where they seemed to have the upper hand during the first two years of the war. That's the First World War. On the basis of the McMahon-Hussein correspondence, an agreement between the British government and Hussein bin Ali, sheriff of Mecca, was a revolt that officially started in Mecca on the 10th of June, 1916. The Arab nationalist goal was to create a single unified and independent Arab state, stretching from Aleppo to Aden, which is Syria to Yemen, which the British had promised to recognize. The Shafian army, led by Hussein and the Hashemites, with military backing from the British-Egyptian expeditionary force, successfully fought and expelled the Ottoman military presence from much of the Jaz and Transjordan. The rebellion eventually took Damascus and up a short lived monarchy led by Faisal, a son of Hussein. Following the Sykes Picot Agreement, the Middle East was later partitioned by the British and French into mandate territories. There was no unified Arab state, much to the anger of many Arab nationalists. Defeated on every front, the Ottoman Empire signed the Armistice of Mudos on the thirtieth of October 1918. Constantinople was occupied by combined British, French, Italian, and Greek forces. In fact, it was the first time foreign occupation happened in Constantinople since it fell to the Ottoman Turks in 1453. In May 1919, Greece also took control of the area around Smyrna. The partition of the Ottoman Empire was finalized under the terms of the 1920 Treaty of Sèvres. This treaty, as designed in the Conference of London, allowed the Sultan to retain his position and title. The status of Anatolia, however, was problematic given the occupied forces. There arose a nationalist opposition in the Turkish national movement. It won the Turkish War of Independence that started in 1919 and ended in 1923. It started under the leadership of Mustafa Kemal, later given the name Arutak. The sultanate was abolished on the first of November nineteen twenty two, and the last sultan Mehmet the sixth resigned or left the country, abdicated seventeenth November nineteen twenty two, and he had only reigned about four years nineteen eighteen to nineteen twenty two. The Republic of Turkey was established in its place on the twenty ninth of October nineteen twenty three, in the new capital city of Ankara. Caliphate was abolished on the 3rd of March 1924. The partitioning was planned in several agreements made by the Allied Powers early in the course of World War I, most notably the Sykes-Picot Agreement, after the Ottoman Empire had joined the Ottoman-German alliance, that is. A huge group of territories and peoples that formerly consisted of the Ottoman Empire was ultimately divided into several new states. The Ottoman Empire had been the leading Islamic state in geopolitical cultural, and ideological terms. The partitioning of the Ottoman Empire after the war led to the domination of the Middle East by Western powers such as Britain and France and saw the creation of the modern Arab world as we know it today and the Republic of Turkey. Resistance to the influence of these powers came from the Turkish national movement, but did not become widespread, in the other post-Ottoman states until the period of rapid decolonization, which was well after World War Two, The sometimes violent creation of protectorates in Iraq and Palestine and the proposed division of Syria along communal lines is thought to have been a part of the larger strategy of making sure tensions in the Middle East persist, thus necessitating the role of Western colonial powers, which at the time was Britain and France, and later the Americans. And they would allow these powers to act as permanent peace brokers and arms suppliers. A League of Nations mandate granted the French mandate for Syria and the Lebanon, the British mandate for Mesopotamia, that later became Iraq, and the British Mandate for the Palestine, which was later divided into mandatory Palestine and the Emirate of Transjordan. The Ottoman Empire's possessions in the Arabian Peninsula became the Kingdom of Hejaz. Then there was the Kingdom of Yemen and British protectorates of Kuwait, Bahrain and Qatar that ultimately all became later states of the Persian Gulf. After the Ottoman Empire ultimately collapsed, and ultimately completely collapsed, its representatives signed the Treaty of Sevilla in 1920, which would have partitioned much of the territory of present-day Turkey amongst France, the UK, Greece, and Italy. The Turkish wars of independence forced the Western European powers to turn to the negotiating table before the treaty could be ratified. Soon, Treaties were struck across the board between, say, the Republic of Turkey, the Kingdom of Iraq, and the British and the French, and all kinds of other countries, including Italy and Russia. In short, things were about to get messy, but the writing on the wall was only on the side of the Western powers because they obviously expected it to get really, really messy and, of course, take some benefit out of it. Anyhow, moving on to something else, which was the Balfour Declaration. The Balfour Declaration encouraged the international Zionist movement to push for a Jewish homeland in Palestine. The Balfour Declaration is very, very important. It will help you understand how the Middle East became the cauldron that it currently is. And the Balfour Declaration was a public statement issued by the British government in 1917 during World War One, announcing support for the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine, then an Ottoman region with a small minority Jewish population. The declaration was contained in a letter dated 2nd of November 1917 from the United Kingdom's Foreign Secretary, Mr. Arthur Balfour to Lord Rothschild, a leader of the British Jewish community, for transmission to the Zionist Federation of Great Britain and Ireland. The text of the declaration was published in the press on the 9th of November, 1917. Immediately following their declaration of war on the Ottoman Empire in November 1914, the British War Cabinet began to consider the future of Palestine. Within two months, a memorandum was circulated to the cabinet by a Zionist cabinet minister, Herbert Samuel, proposing the support of Zionist ambitions in order to enlist the support of Jews in the wider war. A committee was established in April 1915 by British Prime Minister Herbert Henry Asquith to determine their policy towards the Ottoman Empire, including Palestine. Asquith, who had favoured post-war reform of the Ottoman Empire, Resigned in December 1916. His replacement, David Lloyd George, favored partition of the empire. The first negotiations between the British and the Zionists took place at a conference on the 7th of February 1917 that included Sir Mark Sykes and the Zionist leadership. Subsequent discussions led to Balfour's request on the 19th of June that Rothschild and Chaim Wiseman submit a draft of a public declaration. Further drafts were discussed by the British cabinet during September and October with input from Zionist and anti-Zionist Jews but with no representation from the local population of Palestine. By late 1917, in the lead up to the Balfour Declaration, the wider war had reached a stalemate with two of Britain's allies not fully engaged The United States had yet to suffer a casualty and the Russians were in the midst of a revolution with the Bolsheviks taking over the government and had pretty much pulled out of the war. A stalemate in southern Palestine was broken by the Battle of Beersheba on the 31st of October, 1917. The release of the final declaration was authorized on the 31st of October. The preceding cabinet discussion had referenced perceived propaganda benefits amongst the worldwide Jewish community for the Allied war effort. The original letter from Balfour to Rothschild, the declaration, reads, and I'm going to quote, His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. End quote. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the Balfour Declaration. So there you are how the lines in the sand and lines in the soil of the Balkans and the Middle East were drawn. How the Ottoman Empire's fall and its carving up by the big European powers set the stage for the period between 1922 and the rapid decolonization of European powers after World War II. Ultimately, it set in motion the events that shaped the Balkans and the Middle Eastern regions of the world for generations. I also think that it's easy to blame the British or blame the French or blame the Ottomans or blame the Zionists. The historical narrative is there not to pin blame, but to make sense of past events to understand modern situations. The biggest takeaway you all must have on this is that the challenges in the Balkans and the Middle East are not old. No, they are not thousands of years old. They are about a hundred years old. They are recent. Regardless of who you may be or who you may support or not support, these are very recent events. What we think of as the modern Middle East, at the time of this podcast in 2022, just a hundred years ago, all this was going on. That's it. A blip in the space-time continuum. And a minor blip, if you consider the length of the existence of the Roman, Persian, Ottoman, and other empires. You may feel, for example, that Israel was always there, or Palestine was always there, and somebody else came and took their land or whatnot. Well, ultimately, the truth is that neither Israel, nor Palestine, nor Saudi Arabia, nor Kuwait, nor Serbia, nor Romania, nor any of these entities existed before about 100 or 150 years ago. That makes them pretty damn recent, does it not? So these challenges that we're facing are not ancient. They are recent. If you think the Middle East and the Balkans, are a cauldron, then they're a creation of recent modern times. They're not a creation of ancient times. The ancient, or anything older than a hundred years, is used as a pretext in order to justify the modern issues. What is less in dispute are that these civilizations and these cultures have existed for thousands and thousands of years. That much we know from history. But these Nation-states, and remember, nation-states are a European creation ultimately. These nation-states came to existence only a few decades ago. The objective of this is not to dive into the rights and wrongs and the challenges faced by these ethnicities and their dislike for one another or or hatred for neighbours, etc. This is not that at all. All I'm trying to do here is to outline how historically, recent these issues are, how the Ottoman Empire and previous empires before it ruled over these areas, and it was the ultimate breakdown of the Ottoman Empire that resulted in the fractured Middle Eastern Balkans that happened over the last, I would say, hundred odd years till from 1922 to from nineteen twenty two to twenty twenty-two. So that you can then decide for yourself how can then we think about the future or the present. And given that we're talking about a rather hot potato topic, well, the last point that I'd like to make is that nobody has a veto on the truth because there is no such thing as a truth. There are only narratives, stories, propaganda, stuff people remember that what they think they remember, and other stuff that's just plainly made up. Unfortunately, truth doesn't exist. It doesn't exist in any society, let alone the Balkans and the Middle East. A big thank you again for taking the time out to listen to the podcast. Please make sure to like, subscribe and comment on your podcast platform of choice. And until next time, thank you so very much.